What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to Unlikable Female Characters, the podcast about women who don't give a damn if you like them. I'm Lane Fargo, and I'm here today with Isabel Canas, who is a Mexican-American speculative fiction writer who recently got her PhD in medieval Islamic literature. Her debut novel, The Hacienda, came out on May 3rd, which I believe was the day after you defended your dissertation. Like, welcome, Isabel. But also, are you okay? <laughs> I'm not, Lane. I'm struggling. Actually, I feel like I'm coming out of the fog. But oh my god, like the first two weeks after book release and defending my dissertation, I was just hanging on by the skin of my teeth, honestly. I'm sure, because just a book release is super stressful. It's very intense. It is. It's so intense. And the dissertation defense was so intense. And the lead up to it, I think, is the thing that exhausted me the most because I was fluctuating wildly between like, am I more anxious about the book release or am I more anxious about the dissertation defense? And it was so interesting <laughs> because every time I felt myself getting super nervous about my defense, all I had to do was remember that I had a book coming out and then the scales would balance. I did not know I could wow. hold that many emotions in my wee little body for <laughs> as long as I did. But I melted down so many times the week leading up to it. My husband deserves a gold star for consoling me because I would just start to cry over the dumbest stuff. But I think now every book release that I experience will be easier. That's the upside of this. At least I don't have to defend a dissertation. Like, you know, I won't be like culminating seven years of graduate school experience the day right before this book comes out. So not bad. That is wild. That is absolutely wild. I saw you posted that on social media and I was just like, that sounds like a nightmare. But now you've made it through. You're a doctor now. I'm on the other side. And it seems like the book's doing really great. It's a Barnes and Noble Discover pick, right? I saw it at the store on a table all by itself. Very fancy. It is has its own little table. It's amazing. Congratulations. So we've known each other since we were both in Pitch Wars, the class of 2017. Yeah? Yep. It's been a minute. Yeah. I just interviewed last week. I don't know what order these are going to air in, but I interviewed Hannah Witten, who is also- I love her. I love her so much, but she and I were like, oh, wow, we've never spoken to each other. And same for you, even though we used to- Yeah. Both live in the city. Yeah. <laughs> this is so wonderful. This is the great thing about having a book come out. I finally spoke face to virtual face with Hannah Witten, I think last week or the week before. And it was like, oh my God, we're actually talking for the first time instead of just DMing. Like, this is great. It's wonderful. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird because you feel like you know someone and you've had all these interactions with them. And yeah, I've been all up in Hannah's DMs for years. And it was like, oh, wow, I've never looked you in, in the virtual eyes and spoken to you. Yeah. We were like, maybe in another five years, we'll be in the same room. But who knows? Like Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> 
on though. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So tell us a little bit about the Hacienda. So the Hacienda is a gothic novel. I wrote it as horror. It gets sometimes pitched as horror, sometimes as suspense. It has some thriller elements, though I wouldn't call it a thriller. And it's a historical fiction story about a young woman named Beatrice who makes an advantageous marriage to get out of a tight financial spot. And she marries a mysterious widower whose first wife died under mysterious circumstances that everybody seems to have opinions and whispers and rumors about, but that she decides not to pay attention to. So she moves from Mexico City to his dilapidated country estate that has been in his family for generations. And she's living there alone when she discovers that like shit is really haunted and no one seems to believe her. So she seeks help from the local church and finds it in the form of Padre Andres, a young priest who has dark secrets that mean he is more than he appears. That's a great summary. I loved this book. I love gothic books in general, and this is such a smart, fresh take on one. Oh, thank you. Beatrice is a very different gothic heroine. She Mm -hmm. fits some of the tropes, but she's so clear-eyed going into this. She's just like, I am in a situation. This man can get me out of the situation. And in the time period she's living in, like, what other option does she have? This is definitely the best course of action. And then she gets there and finds out the house is crazy haunted, like so haunted. (laughs) (laughs) And she's just like, I am not leaving. Fuck you, ghosts. We're going to figure this out. Exactly. Exactly. I get a lot of questions about her because in some ways, like you said, very astutely, she does fit some of the the archetypes of the traditional Gothic heroine, like from Rebecca, for example. But unlike the unnamed Mrs. De Winter, like one, she has a given name (laughs) given (laughs) to the audience. Two, she fights back. And I did that intentionally because when I read Rebecca, it's a masterpiece. It is. But it really sparked this incredible anger in me. I was really mad at the heroine because I was so frustrated by how she behaved in the book. And her lack of agency, I think, really contributes to the overall atmosphere of the book. It contributes to the dread. It contributes to the mystery. But it drove me batshit crazy because I was like, girl, fight back, you know, (laughs) say something. And I think Beatrice was born out of a desire to read a heroine who would fight back, who made a marriage of convenience because she knew it would be good for her financial situation. It would protect her and her mother knows she's not making a marriage for love, like definitely knows it and is very at peace with that and will not back down when confronted with a haunting and will not back down when confronted with her sister-in-law or other people who are very unwelcoming to her when she arrives at the Hacienda, because, you know, as she says later in the book, not tonight, you bitch, like I'm a general's (laughs) daughter and I will fight back. So that's where she came from. And I think perhaps this was me projecting when I read Rebecca, but everybody puts a bit of themselves into their novels. And I definitely put my fuck you attitude into Beatrice. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yeah, I feel similarly about Rebecca. I love that book. I love some of the movie versions. (laughs) I haven't seen any of them. I'm just like, oh, could I handle it? Like the latest one with Army Hammer and the chick from Downton Abbey. I was like, it looks sumptuous. It looks beautiful. But would I tear my hair out watching it? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, God. Oh, no. Okay, now I'll never watch it. it. Okay. I like the old one. Like the Hitchcock one is very different from the book, but like it's, you know, a solid movie. But the new one, I was just like, I mean, Army Hammer's reputation aside. (laughs) I feel like every time I talk about this movie, we end up talking about cannibalism. I mean, you know, that's all I can think of now when I see yeah. them. I know, I know. But yeah, that's where Beatrice came from. 
written it in reaction, my anger reaction to Rebecca. I don't know why I felt so strongly about it, but it's like, you know how sometimes you read books and you're like, everybody loves them or they're really, really good or really, really critically acclaimed or whatever. And there's something about them that just does not let you sleep. Like just makes you so fucking annoyed or mad or what that you just have to get up and write something to fix it, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think she's really frustrating because she is so passive, but also Mm -hmm. the more she learns about like the history of the house and her husband she's still like but I love him where Beatrice is like okay that that checks out like this yeah now <laughs> yeah no no we learn things about Rodolfo that are very unpalatable and he is a villain and we see him clear-eyed in that regard like that was definitely something where that did drive me crazy about Mrs. De Winter and Rebecca like it's like I love but I love him but he's so wonderful I'm like bitch there's like a, how much of an age gap is there between you two Like, what is he doing? He's not helping you. He doesn't give a shit about you. He's super obsessed with his dead wife. This is weird, guys. And he's like, I maybe killed my dead wife, but she was a bitch. So like, what could I do? So it's fine. What could I do? What other choice did I have? I don't know. Anything but murder. (laughs) She's like, that sounds reasonable, honey. Let's be happy forever. Yeah. Oh my God. And like the point of telling is it's in the future and she's with him looking back on those years. And I'm like, you're still with him? You're still with him? Oh. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, so I wrote this book in intentional conversation with certain parts of Rebecca. And uh, yeah, that's where it came from. (laughs) I mean, I love that Beatrice, because she is a general's daughter, she's very strategic and calculating, Mm -hmm. which is something that women get criticized a lot for. This is something we talk about a lot where it's like, if women are calculating and strategic, then they're being fake or manipulative, but then go too far in the other direction, they're naive. So it's like, which one is it? What are we supposed to do? Like, Pick a side. (laughs) What am I supposed to do? I really wanted to write a character who was pragmatic. I think about this a lot in terms of Beatriz's relationship with her sister-in-law, Juana, who is her foil in many regards, because they're both very pragmatic women who are very protective of their independence and their autonomy as people first and women second, but with the constraints that being a woman in the 19th century brought with it and their own socially precarious positions based on their backgrounds, which I won't fully reveal because that would be very spoilery, but for (laughs) Beatriz, it comes from the fact that her father was mestizo, so of mixed heritage. And in Mexico at this time, there was a casta system in the Spanish Americas whereby one's social status, rank, and sometimes even legal status and rights were determined by your racial background, which was a mix of white European, indigenous, uh, and or black. I don't want to give too much away, but they're definitely very unlikable women. Although it has been interesting to have conversations with readers. I had someone tell me recently that they really, really liked Juana at the beginning and were kind of upset about how the story turned out. And again, I don't want to give away anything, but I found that very interesting because it kind of told me a little bit about who they were as a person, (laughs) as well as a reader. Because I was like, oh, that's so interesting. But I think at the end of the day, she is a very sympathetic character. I think those of us who are reading fiction in the 21st century have certain ideas about or come from certain perspectives when it comes to reading female characters in the 19th century. And I think Courtney Milan on Twitter once said that when it comes to writing historical romance, one thing she tries to think about, and I wish I could quote this directly, but it's like lost to the sands of time and the mess that is the bird app. But she said that one thing she tries to think about when writing historical fiction is not about making things historically accurate so much as making them plausible. And I think if we were to write historically accurate characters in the 19th century, nobody would want to read them because 
fundamentally we're writing for a 21st century audience. And so when it came to crafting these female characters, I definitely was writing as a 21st century woman for a 21st century audience and with the historical world building, if you will, of 19th century settings and its constraints. But one of the reasons that I chose this period right after Mexico's war of independence from Spain was because at the end of this 11 year period of protracted civil strife that was very economically destructive, a lot of men died and a lot of women were widows or they lost fathers or brothers and found themselves at the heads of agricultural businesses like Hacienda San Isidro or businesses in cities. And so they did have more financial and social autonomy than they had previous to the War of Independence. Autonomy and female pragmatism in this 19th century setting was always a part of the book. From the very beginning, I knew it was going to be a pulque estate because when I was doing historical research, I followed the money. Like who would have money at the end of an 11 year civil conflict? Maybe somebody who makes beer, you know? <laughs> and when you look at who had money after the war, pulque estates scraped by and they made it through. I loved Juana. I mean, kind of the whole way through because like, as <laughs> the basis of this show is that we love unlikable female characters yeah. and root for them, even if they do bad things, which again, we won't yeah. spoil. But Beatrice and Juana both kind of want the same thing. I mean, they want to be independent. They want to yeah. make their own way in the world. And they live in this society that's really constraining them, as you said. And Beatrice chooses marriage and Juana chooses not getting married because that's the best situation for her. Like she yep. gets to be in charge of all this stuff on this estate because of her position as the the sister of the man who runs the estate and they can't both have what they want at the same time or they think that's yes. the case yeah so they're immediately in opposition it's like only one of us can be in charge only one of us can be the lady of the house and it's too bad because i feel like if they really joined forces they would be pretty unstoppable but i they understand given the context why they would feel like they're in opposition this is what yeah. the patriarchy does to us <laughs> it pits a powerful women against one another and it sucks i actually had a lot of fun writing Juana because I also feel an enormous amount of sympathy for her. She makes decisions that I don't necessarily agree with at the end of the day, but the reasoning behind them, I find deeply sympathetic. I grew up in a very Catholic, conservative background where women were expected to be extremely submissive, and I rebelled against that. And I know what it's like to not have your voice heard, to be told what to do and expected to obey. And it really drives a lot of my female characters. A lot of my characters are informed by that experience and informed by the anger that I still hold from those years that I lived in that pocket of the world. And Juana and Beatriz, you're right. They're very similar in many regards. They do want a lot of the same things. They just go about them in different ways. That was part of the fun of writing them in opposition to one another as foils. Like, could they have joined forces and rebelled together against Rodolfo and run away together? <laughs> Maybe that's, that's a different book where Juana makes really different decisions about how she's going to protect what she believes is hers. Yeah, fuck the patriarchy. Fuck but it. Fuck it. But I knew I was writing into a specific tradition. And so I wanted to fill archetypal roles like that of the husband and that of the archetypal Mrs. De Winter, the ingenue who comes to the place and doesn't really know what's going on and is out of place because of her class or lacks agency because of her class or financial situation. And I knew I wanted the big house and I knew I wanted an element of madness because what makes the Gothic Gothic? It's the big house and maybe some madness. And Juana really took on a life of her own because I knew I wanted to have 
not just a Mrs. Danvers type character, people who were slightly gaslighty of or didn't trust or were unwelcoming to the main character in this book, but she became very vivid for me very early on. I think I understand a lot of her motivations and I understand mm -hmm. her will and her drive to survive. And a lot of that comes from the heart, but don't trust her. I <laughs> <laughs> can't trust anyone in Gothic. No, trust no bitch when it comes to the Gothic. But okay, speaking of Catholicism and archetypes, we have to talk about the hot priest. Yes! Isabel, the priest is so hot. Yes! <laughs> I was so into him. I'm so glad. That just makes my heart sing. He was a really special character. He was not supposed to be an important part of this book at all. He was meant to be a little side character, you know? And really? Yes. And I don't know what kind of writer you are, if you're a pantser or a plotter, but I am a plotter to the core. I'm extremely type A about this. I've written about this in my newsletter. I've talked about it on process-oriented podcasts at length. I am extremely regimented. And this man walked into my fucking book and chucked my process out the window. Like how rude. I knew I wanted a priest on whom Beatrice could rely, whom she could trust, because I was kind of writing from a place of wish fulfillment where I wanted to, to have my main character have bad experiences with the church and have her approach to the church informed by these bad experiences or mistrust, as many people were mistrustful of the church at this point in Mexico's history. But I wanted someone who was also kind of out of place, who wasn't really a rebel, but found himself in a social situation, a precarious situation where they could become allies in a way that would move the plot forward. I just remember writing the scene where he first comes to Hacienda San Isidro to like suss it out and stays there in the middle of the night to see what kind of activity builds to understand what Beatrice is dealing with because she wants an exorcism and he says he can deliver on that. I remember writing the scene in which after having a frightening experience, she walked into the parlor, took a piece of charcoal from his pocket, crouched on the ground and began drawing glyphs. And I heard a voice whether it was my subconscious or like the Greek genius swooping in and giving me advice, but I heard a voice saying, he is a witch. And I lifted my hands off the keyboard. I was like, what the fuck? I did not plan that. And now I have to change the entire book because there's no going back after this moment. He's a witch. He really was a character who took me by surprise so many times over the course of this book. And I think the reason that is, is because he is the character with whom I think I was the most vulnerable. Like Beatrice has parts of me that are easy to talk about. She's very stubborn. She's very willful. She's very pragmatic. She has a lot of qualities that we as 21st century fuck you women deem admirable. And Andres is the soul of this book because he embodies a conflict that I have lived of being the result of parents of two different cultural backgrounds who did not get along at all who deals with questions of identity and belonging and faith from a very young age, even just by the nature of being born who he is, whether that's mestizo or being a witch. And I think that I poured a lot of myself into him and I wrote a lot about myself in a way that I've never written before when it came to writing his character. He has a lot of doubts about his role in his community and his role in his family that are very true to me and I hope will resonate with readers who are also from similar backgrounds to mine, but I love him to pieces. And of course I had to make him hot because who am I, if not first self-indulgent? 
And <laughs> we love a forbidden romance in this house. Like we do, it just pushes all my buttons. Like if there is yearning, say less, I am there. Yeah, there's lots of them like holding each other's gaze a little too long or they accidentally brush hands or oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. like you had some line about how he's so tall that she's standing next to him holding a candle and it makes his head kind of look like she can see his skull and I was like oh no yeah. <laughs> this is my exact shit so oh, obsessed so happy Lane yeah I don't know about you but I, I don't often go back and read things that I write like once it's written past pages are done it's put to bed I will never look at it again I refuse to listen to the audiobook although you definitely should dear listeners because the narrators did the most they swung for the fences. Their performances are incredible. And I got to pick them. So that was a really special experience. But recently, I was flipping through the book to win an argument, frankly, about something. <laughs> and <laughs> I stumbled across a scene where Padre Andres is described very lovingly, you know, because he's a hottie. And I was like, wow, yeah, I went there, didn't I? <laughs> I did. I did. That's such a part of Gothic, though, the yearning and the forbidden oh, romance yes. and the like, oh, yes. we're, like, pressed together in this like dark space and we shouldn't, but we want to, but we mustn't, like that whole oh, thing. And that was like, I think one of the tricky things about writing this was balancing the horror and the romance. It's something that I found in this book I'm writing right now as well. It's really tricky because the bond that can blossom between characters in times of emotional and physical distress and psychological distress is really interesting. And so you can build that relationship and make it emotionally intimate and intense over a shorter period of time. Because if there are experiences where there's a lot of psychological stress and they must rely on one another, then this is ripe opportunity for, like I said before, emotional intimacy to blossom in a much faster way than it would in casual normal times, I guess. But it was tricky to balance like we're fighting for our lives and we're really terrified of this presence that's haunting the hacienda but also horny <laughs> but also super horny like this is at its heart there is a very horny thread running through this book because i'm sorry priests are forbidden therefore we want like mm -hmm. gimme 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 we love forbidden romance it was really fun writing them it was really self-indulgent and i knew that there's a certain subset of readers who will be offended by a priest breaking certain vows and practicing witchcraft. And this book is not for them. It's for the girls who love a hot priest. <laughs> That's me. Yep. 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 So it was really fun. Joaquin Phoenix and Quills ruined my life early. And then yeah. obviously Fleabag is like the hot priest. Yes. 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 A lot of people Ooh. say that this is like big Fleabag season two vibes. And I haven't watched all of Fleabag, but when I was preparing to write this book and I knew he was going to be hot, if not a witch, because I didn't know that at the time, I went on YouTube and watched basically every scene between Fleabag and the hot priest. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I dig yeah. it. Yeah, this is going in the book for sure. <laughs> Their chemistry, insane. It flies off the screen. It's amazing. I love, love, love. I need to watch the whole thing from start to finish, um, at least all of season two, because the yearning, though, the yearning. <laughs> I'm glad you did your research, though. Very important. Yes, yes. I'm very <laughs> diligent about that. Well, I would love to talk a little bit about your writing process, because first of all, okay, you were getting your PhD while you were working on this, and yep. I saw in the little media kit that your publisher sends out that you drafted this book in five weeks. How? Yep. How dare you? And also how? <laughs> um, I, I think because of my PhD, I, I always have known that like, so I wrote my first book 
the book I wrote before Pitch Wars in 2016, in the first year of my PhD. And then the following summer, I wrote a second book. And I, the thing that I knew I had to do was binge draft books in the summers. I could do research, I could do notes, I could do outlining while I was in classes and teaching, but I couldn't draft in the way that suits me best, which is binging, unless it was summertime. So I taught myself slowly and, and then I got better at it to write as fast and clean as possible in the summers. So I could knock out a book in six weeks or in a month. I'm less good at that now. <laughs> You will be happy to hear that it does not stick with me now that I no longer have, thank God, I no longer have like the pressing intense time constraint of being in grad school. I've loosened up a little bit and I don't think I draft books as quickly, but I wrote my last book in the middle of drafting my PhD dissertation and it is a mess. It is a hot mess that I'm revising right now, but yeah, my process is very particular in that I do a ton of outlining at the beginning. My ideas usually take a year or two to gestate, which is another reason that the Hacienda is a bit of an outlier because I started writing it, I think like two months after I first got the idea. So that was wild for me. It was very different from my usual song and dance routine. I use a lot of craft books to guide me through the project. I'm a big fan of Lisa Cron's Story Genius. I'm a big fan of Save the Cat Writes a Novel by Jessica Brody as ways of structuring the whole shape of the book because I'm the kind of writer who really needs to see the whole shape of the thing before I dive in and start mm -hmm. writing. And I'm also a very voice-driven writer. So the reason that my projects usually gestate for so long is because I haven't found the right voice for them. And not just like, is it first person, is it third person? While that is something I agonize over, like truly is really tough. Like which tense am I going to use? What is the narrative point of view? I really know that a book is end game for me. Like I'm writing this next when I hit the voice just right. And for the Hacienda that came while I was on my honeymoon in Mexico city, literally on a dark and stormy night, I was laying awake in bed. I had just gotten a really crushing rejection on a YA manuscript that I wrote after my pitch wars book, which also died on submission. So I had experienced a lot of rejection in the years leading up to this moment. And I just received a crushing, heartbreaking rejection. And I knew I had to pivot. And I knew I had this haunted house idea. So it was a new genre. I thought it was YA, obviously it ended up being adults, but I was laying awake in bed, kind of listening to the rain and the thunder overhead. And the whole first few pages unfurled in my mind as if it were being read aloud to me. And I heard the voice and I saw this man kneeling on the road, watching a carriage pull away. And I snatched my phone off the nightstand and started typing as fast as I could because it had a distinct voice. Like it was crisp, distinct words and I could feel the rhythm of it. And that's when I knew I have to write this book. I have to, and this priest is going to be a part of it. Obviously this is the man who's narrating the opening pages of the book, but I didn't know how important he would become, but I knew that once I had his voice, I was in it to win it. And so, yeah, it's interesting how after this book, I'm able to loosen the reins a little bit when it comes to my intense drafting process. I still try and write like 4,000 words a day. I do word <laughs> sprints. I start at the same time every day. I create a practice and I create a structure in which I create the best possible conditions for that genius to strike, you know? So if I'm doing the work every day, the magic will come. 
is my philosophy about all of this. And I think writing the Hacienda taught me to be a little more open to that magic. I, I, I don't know what it is because I, I don't always love it when people say like, oh, well, the characters made me do it. Because I'm like, no, you're the one writing the book. You are making the characters do things. But I think it is really important to really trust our subconsciouses as writers, which is something I'm afraid to do because imposter syndrome. And I think I can't possibly be good at this if I've been rejected so much. Do you know what I mean? My journey has been one of being extremely regimented about my process and learning how to let go a little bit and trust my own subconscious. Because at the end of the day, those of us who write have absorbed story for our entire lives and thought critically about story for a long, long time. And we do know what we're doing, you know? So this is my advice to writers who are over plotters like me out there. Like, trust yourself a little bit, trust your gut. Trust your subconscious because you do know what you're doing. I need that advice. I try to overplot a lot and mm -hmm. I tie myself up in knots. And yeah, when you're first starting out, it makes sense. All the books and the structures and that, but you do internalize it after a yeah. while and you do have to trust yourself, but it's hard, especially in a field where there's so much rejection and so much disappointment. And even when there's a success, you're like, but the next one, I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's a very difficult industry to break into. And one that I felt like there was an extra layer of rejection being a Latina writer. There was a lot of weirdly worded rejections that made me feel less, you know? Mm. And I was very afraid. I finished this book in, so I wrote the first half of it in three weeks in NaNoWriMo of 2019. I set it aside, sent it to my agent. I had to go back to my university to teach and then a pandemic hit. And so in April of 2020, I was locked into a tiny studio apartment in Brooklyn with my husband and did not want to write my PhD dissertation, which is what I was supposed to be doing. And instead, <laughs> in two weeks, I revised the first half of it and then wrote the second half of it, which wow. was like a fever dream. Like I was writing 6,000 words a day, every day, really pushing myself. And uh, it came out really clean for whatever fucking reason. Will I ever be able to replicate that? I tried. <laughs> I thought at the end of it, I know how to write a book now, fantastic. And I don't. <laughs> Every book is different and you don't know what kind of different it's gonna be until you're actually in the weeds. And that is interesting and difficult. I think good advice for writers too is always have another thing that you're supposed to be doing that you don't want to do and then you'll Ooh, write yes. your book so quickly. Like that's that's the oh, key. Yes. Oh yes. If you're being bad, if you're being naughty, if it becomes the forbidden fruit, like there is nothing stopping you, you know? Yeah. Make your project like the hot priest that yes, you can't have. Exactly. You Yearn for it. Channel that yearning. Make it forbidden. <laughs> I love it. I love that advice. Oh, I need that advice now. I think it's tricky now because I am now a full-time writer. Wow. Weird. Congrats. I'm, thank you. Now that I'm defending my PhD, I have to do some light revisions. My footnotes are a disaster, <laughs> of course, but I file that away. I file that in July and I'm a full-time writer. And so I'm working on a book and it's my job. It sounds like you have such great discipline in terms of, I mean, 4,000 words a day, goddamn. <laughs> That's my happy place. I think some projects go faster and some go slower. And it kind of depends faster. on- Look at this. Yes, came faster. Like it just poured <laughs> out of me. It was insane. It was insane. There was one day where I wrote 10,000 words. I think you're a witch. I think that's what I'm learning here at this I, interview. God, I hope so because <laughs> I hope so because then I can just surrender to that and then my book two will magically be done. <laughs> but it has hexed me every step of the way. Like uh, if I'm a witch and so is book two because 
Ah, she's giving me hell. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a good segue. I don't know if you want to share anything about book two. I'm not yet allowed to, but I can say a few things. So I can give some hints. So I think it will appeal to readers of the Hacienda because one, it deals with 19th century Mexican history. Although in this case, that is South Texas in 1846 at the outbreak of the Mexican-American War. My family's from South Texas. They've been there for, God, since, I think my mom told me the earliest document is from like 1821, we have family in Corpus. So like basically since Mexican independence, since before it became a part of the US, it also has romance. This time I deal with a different trope. I love childhood best friends to lovers and I love me a good second chance romance. So I definitely lean into the romance a little more in this next book, it's a little spicier. And then it also has a healthy helping of the supernatural, although this time it is in the form of monsters rather than a haunting. So I can't say much more than that, but I definitely am infatuated with the characters, which is the best possible case scenario I found because they're the ones who really keep me going through a book. Books usually come to me premise first, but it's when I find the characters and find their voices that it really hits the ground running. And Mm -hmm. this book too is one of those books where like the dialogue follows me around all day as I'm doing dishes, as I'm in the shower, like they're just arguing all day in my head. And I just live for that. You know, it's just, oh, it's so fun. So it's really coming to life. I, I wrote the first draft of it in, I split it up between August of last year and November of last year. And it was a slog. I wrote it wrong in pretty much every way you possibly could touch wood. I hope I've gotten all of the wrong books out of my system before finally writing the right one. But I think I was trying to like cram two ideas into one book, like two separate book ideas into one book. There were way too many supporting characters. The first act was like 40% of the fucking book. This is where beat sheets come in handy, those who don't use them, for figuring out how much of your book percentage-wise should be the setup. Like ideally, 20%. And then we move into the second act and are off to the races, but God, it was a mess. So I'm rewriting it now. I had to extricate a lot of plot lines that didn't make sense or were colliding and not gelling with the core elements of the manuscript. It was hard and it's been hard. So how do second book? Because (laughs) literally... It's so hard. Everyone says the second book is hard and it was for me too. And now I've had an even harder time with my third book. So I feel like, yeah, you just never learned how to write a book. It's just a a slog every time, but we love it and we keep doing it. (laughs) Honestly, I think that's a really great insight. Like no one really knows how to write books because every book is different. So you kind of build tools that might help along the way. Because I'm finding that every time I write a new book, I have a skill set of tools, like the fast drafting, the beat sheets, the backstory building through Lisa Cron's story genius, other things I do like extensive note taking, what have you. And I feel like for every book, if I have five skills, I use two to three of them for every book and it's never the same two to three. I like that. Having like a toolbox. That's, that's really yeah. Good. And every book demands a different kind of tool. And so I feel like the one that I'm really working on now is revision because I hate revising. There's a moment in a book where you must break it. Like everything, gets torn asunder and then you piece it back together like a massive patchwork quilt. At least that's how it is in my experience. I hate that moment. I love that. (laughs) What is your secret? Because that is the part that for me has the most discomfort. And so I avoid it and I put it off and I put it off and I put it off. 
See, the part know. for me that has the most discomfort that I put off is the actual writing. And then you can't revise it because there's nothing on the page. I uh, hate writing. I hate writing. I love having all the pieces and then I can love having written. around. Yes, I love having written. I love having the pieces and then I can see how it all fits together and polish it and make it not suck. But it's so hard for me to get to that stage. So I do all these things to trick myself. I'll make like nice. sticker charts and I get yes. like a sticker for each like five yes. words or I've been experimenting just recently with the book I'm writing now is a lot of it is like documentary interviews. And so it's people talking. So I've been oh, talking so as cool. though I'm the characters talking into the voice memos on my like iPhone. And, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Because then you get the cadence of speaking, which is yeah. so different from writing dialogue, especially when yeah. you like don't know how to write dialogue and you kind of write words that are for dialogue and you read them out loud and you're like, or you're doing a first draft, you write dialogue and then you read it out loud and you think, oh, wow, that is really clunky. Gotta fix that. You're kind of skipping that point. Like, mm -hmm. that's so cool. And it tricks me because it doesn't feel like writing. I'm just talking. Brilliant. Um, Do you think you'd ever dictate a whole book? I don't know. I'm going to try doing more because I've been so stuck on some things about this book. And this morning I just sat down and talked into my phone for half an hour and like worked out some things. So I don't know. Oh, I'm amazing. a Gemini. So I like to just gotcha. <laughs> talk a lot, I guess. Yep. 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 I have many beloved Geminis in my life. My mom and my older sister. I'm like, you guys, I'm a Scorpio. Um, oh, no surprises yeah. there. Yeah. Basically <laughs> my entire chart, I have like Leo moon and then everything else is Scorpio. Just Scorpio's all the way down. And I'm like, well, I am a parody of myself. <laughs> no wonder you're a gothic writer. That's Obviously, <laughs> there was no escaping it. There was just no escaping it. So I leaned into it and it's great. I'm very happy. I think in the future, I may want to pivot back to fantasy. But for now, I'm definitely writing this 19th century Mexican gothic horror train. And I fucking love it. <laughs> It's a very fun train to ride and I will take it all the way home. Well, it's very fun to read too. And I'm really excited to see whatever you write next. Oh, I can't wait to tell people about it. I can't wait to tell you about it. It's so indulgent and fun. Oh, and it's going to be scary. Once you have a release date and everything, we'll have to have you back on the show to talk about that one. I love that. This has been so much fun. I'm so glad we finally got to speak after all of these years of like knowing each other on the internet. <laughs> and if we could just conclude by you telling everyone where they can find you on the internet if they want to follow you in your work. Absolutely. So first and foremost, you can find purchase links to my book and you can read my short stories and find out more about me on isabelcanas.com, I-S-A-B-E-L-C-A-N-A-S.com. And I'm on Instagram and a little bit on TikTok, mostly Instagram at, at Isabel Cañas underscore, I-S-A-B-E-L-C-A-N-A-S underscore. I'm also on Twitter. Very, very little these days. Mostly I just lurk. But again, <laughs> that's the same as my Instagram handle. And my TikTok is at Isabel Cañas author. But yeah, mostly on Instagram, I'd say. That's my happy place. Same for me. Well, thank you so much. And The Hacienda is out now wherever books are sold. And you will know it by its fucking gorgeous cover so go get a copy and enjoy hot goth summer <laughs> yes live your best hot goth summer and you know enjoy the hot priest yes you will enjoy the hot priest <laughs> That's it for this episode of Unlikable Female Characters. Don't forget to subscribe, and you can also follow us on Twitter at UnlikableFCPod for updates, book recommendations, and angry feminist rants. Our website is unlikablefemalecharacters.com, and we're also on Instagram at unlikablefemalecharacters. Thanks for listening.